Well, friends, today is, I think it's about week three or four of our series on the book of Genesis and working our way through the early uh, chapters of Genesis. In these past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the wonder of creation. We're looking at how God made the heavens and the earth, how he breathed them into existence. He spoke them into existence. He brought order out of chaos. Uh, we've learned that God created all things in his sovereignty and he called them good. He put them together in an orderly way. Uh, we learned how God has made mankind on the sixth day of creation. In his image, male and female, uh, he created them. He created them on the sixth day along with all the animals that dwell on the ground. And he called that very good as a matter of fact. We learned that being made in God's image mean that, means that both men and women are, are equally image bearers of God, equally worthy of respect, uh, of equal worth and dignity and importance in God's eyes. Uh, and then in Genesis chapter 2 today, uh, God seems to zoom in on this sixth day of creation. If you have a look at Genesis, it seems as though there's two creation stories in chapters 1 and in chapter 2. I haven't uh, spoken a lot yet about the source of the book of Genesis. Uh, people traditionally attribute it to Moses, um, but uh, towards the end of the Pentateuch, those first five books, Moses actually dies. So I don't think he wrote all of it. He may have originally penned parts, but obviously he had help editing and putting it together. And there are, in fact, two little creation narratives there in the opening chapters of Genesis. And Genesis chapter 2 really zooms in on this sixth day of creation, as though God wants to really focus in on this relationship between the man and the woman. It is as though God wants to tell us something quite important about what it means to be human, about having companionship, about being in relationship, and about having a helper as we go through life in the garden, as we go about God's will, seeking his will, as we seek fullness of life here on earth. I'm just going to read to you, uh, just the, I'm not going to go right through the whole of chapter 2, just got some verses from verse 18 through to 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, if you've got it open in front of you, that might help. Uh, if you've got an eye thing or an iPad, you might want to follow along. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sea, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, "Now, so this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to explore this passage, we pray that you'll reveal your wonderful truths to us. 
Father, we pray that you will open our eyes to see things in here in this very familiar story that we might not have seen before. Father, we pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. In Jesus' name, all the people said, Amen. Well, friends, as we heard last week, God fashioned Adam from the dust of the earth. He, uh, he fashioned him from the dust of the earth and placed him in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, with a command to tend to it, to, to look after it. So here is Adam. He's on the scene, uh, and he's given a pretty sweet deal, isn't he? A pretty sweet deal. He's given every good seed-bearing, fruit-bearing a plant for food. He's perfectly butt naked and he's happy about it. He's there in the garden. So it's a, it's a pretty sweet deal. A big shout out to all of my vegan friends out there. Um, I have to confess as much as I like a nice T-bone steak or a lamb shank, it does appear as though God's good life-giving plan for the planet was sort of a, a vegan paradise. No death had yet appeared on the face of the earth. The first time we sort of hear of any death is when... Uh, Adam and Eve, subsequent to the fall, we're hearing about this next week, cover themselves with with animal skins. But more about that next week. But we soon discover that something, even before the fall, is something is still not quite right. Something is, well, Adam's still lacking something. For the first time in the creation story, in chapter 2, verse 18, God declares that something is not good. Seven times in chapter 1, God declares what he's been doing good. And the final time, it's very good. But now, something is not good. So it's a little bit jarring. You see, at this point, Adam is alone. God declares that creation is incomplete without woman. So just as God in his very essence is is relationship, that is, his pre-existing in the form of Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit, so too Adam, being made in God's image, was designed for relationship. He was meant to be in relationship. Adam's aloneness is emphasized in the text by the fact that all the animals are paraded before him and no suitable helper is found. Remember, too, that all of this is occurring before the fall. All of this is is happening before the entrance of sin into human experience. Even in his pre-fall perfection, Adam is not up to the task of going it alone in the world. Even in his pre-fall perfection, Adam Adam needs some help. (laughs) Man's need for relationship was built into the design of creation by God. We need a healthier relationship with God to be sure, but we also need relationship with one another. We see this all the time in our society where loneliness is is running rampant. We see this this all the time. Anyone that's ever worked in a call center, as I did in my younger days, will know that there are people that will ring up a call center just to have a chat. Um, When you work in a call center, you realize there's always going to be people ringing up simply to be abusive, and there's this other person that will quite often ring up, and they ring up quite regularly. You get to know these people because they ring up with the pretense of checking a balance or something, but they just want to chat, and you can't get them off the phone. These people are are lonely. Someone placed an ad in a local newspaper and said, I'll listen to you on the phone for 30 minutes for $5. The story goes the phone rang off the hook. Such is the loneliness of people out there. Albert Einstein uh, 
once famously said, it is strange to be so universally known, yet so personally lonely. Isn't that sad for poor old Albert? One of the great men of science, so universally known, yet he felt so personally very lonely. We learn from Einstein's dilemma and from Adam's here that relationships are important. When we focus only on the material, physical needs of, and ignore the, our relational needs, we're neglecting God's good design. We human beings are social animals. We were created for companionship. One of the really sad results, I think, of this pandemic has been the dislocation, the loneliness of, of, of people. I think it's going to have some far-reaching downstream effects, I, I reckon. So, here we are. God, again, takes the initiative, as he always does. God takes the initiative. He acts first, and he, he takes responsibility, and he causes Adam to fall into what we're told is a deep sleep, and he fashions Eve from one of his ribs. Just a little aside, don't believe those stories that men have one less rib than women. That's not true. They don't. <laughs> you quite often hear that. I've heard that many times. It's not true. Men and women have the same number of ribs, uh, just as when a person loses an arm in an accident, they can still produce children with two arms, um, so too as did Adam to his children, both male and, and female. What is our first little takeaway from this story, I think, what I found really enlightening was when I saw that God was at work even when Adam was asleep. God was at work even while Adam sleeps. I think that's something that we can take away today. Even while we are asleep, know that God is at work for your good. Whether it is indeed in terms of your marriage or just in any of our earthly relationships, God is at work. I do sometimes wonder if Adam had have been awake during that procedure. I know there are some operations that are done today where the patient is still conscious. I was wondering if that was the case, would Adam be putting in his order, would like a redhead please God or... I'd like a smaller nose, a couple of inches taller, please, God. But I think it's good that Adam was asleep. You see, friend, God knows best. God knows what we truly need. So our first little takeaway is, are you trusting God for your good, uh, even to work for your good, even while you are asleep? Are you trying to take control of everything in, in your relationships, be you married or, or, or single? Now, the position description that Eve fulfills is of a suitable helper. A suitable helper. Suitable literally here means like one that was in front of him. The idea has an idea of, of correspondence. One who is like him in his humanness, in his, in his personhood. So let me ask you a question. If I was to ask you, what is most like half of the moon? If you look at the moon and, and carve it in half, and you only had half of the moon... And, and, and you had to describe it to somebody else. What would you say half of the moon was like? Would you say it's sort of, well, it's sort of, Peter, it's sort of like half a basketball or, or half an orange or half a wheel of cheese, if you believe it's made out of, of cheese? Yes, Don? What? Pink Floyd's album, Before My Time. You must be very old. <laughs> What's that? Far Side of the Moon. Yep, it is a great album. I'll grant you that. I do need to educate myself on the, on the ways of classical rock music. But can I, can I suggest, um, when it comes to the moon, 
uh, the thing that is most like half of the moon is, in fact, the other half of the moon. It is not exactly the same. It's not identical, is it? But it is certainly a, a, perfect, a perfect match. In the same way, what is most like the man? Well, it's a woman. And what is most like a woman? The answer is, of course, a man. Men and women are different, and viva la difference. The human race would quickly die out without it. But we are, in fact, more alike than anything else in all of creation because we bear God's image. Amen? Now, a helper is one who gives aid or support, but there's no inferiority intended by this term. Indeed, later on in the Old Testament, God would go on to be described as Israel's helper. That's important to note that. God provides a princess to rule beside Adam in, in looking after the creation for, for the king. He's provided a partner who would be like him who could relate to him, who could support him and help him to fulfill his purpose in the world. The emphasis here is on compatibility and, and of companionship. The fulfillment and the completion of creation required the partnership between a man and a woman. But why did God choose to do it in this regard? I mean, why wouldn't, wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't it be clearer to communicate both men and women's equal worth and dignity and personhood? Why didn't he just fashion Adam and Eve at the same time out of the same lump of dirt? Well, perhaps God wanted to say something about the relationship between the man and the woman. Some followers of Jesus maintain that, that sort of Adam's firstness tells us something, that it had, tells us something about his responsibility. Now, you'll sometimes hear this particular belief called complementarianism, um, that is, that while men and women are of equal worth and dignity, that he has, in fact, given men and women different roles uh, within the family, within marriage, and even within the church. Uh, they point to the fact that um, before the woman was even created, God gave instructions to the man about how to best live on the earth, some rules about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good or evil, uh, lest he die. And given that there's no record of this instruction being given to the woman, to, to Eve, um, some people point to the fact that well, it was therefore Adam's responsibility uh, to take responsibility for sharing this with Eve and being accountable for it. They also note that if you look to Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, God comes to Adam to hold him to account for what has, has happened. Whereas Satan, if you know the story, we'll get to this next week, but Satan goes to Eve not because she's more gullible or because she's easier prey, but perhaps because making her the spokesperson and the moral guardian is exactly what not should not have been done. Um, the theory is that Satan deliberately confuses gender roles by spurning the good order that God has established and simply ignores the man and takes up his challenge with the woman. And in doing so, of course, just sidelines Adam and turns him into exactly what Satan wants him to be, that is, uh, silent and, and, and weak uh, fearful and, and, and passive, withdrawn, and not really, frankly, taking responsibility for his family or for his surroundings. Uh, Christians who hold that a wife should indeed submit to her husband uh, point to the fact that, uh, that there is nothing to be ashamed of in submitting. They put on the fact that even Jesus himself says that he, the son, submits to the father. Um, other followers of Jesus, of course, claim that there is no inherent uh, gender-based firstness in this order of creation. Uh, they, they say that that's, uh, that's not how it, it, it works. 
Uh, they said that there isn't any differences between men and women uh, in the home or, or, or in the church. And that, in fact, when you think about it, if you're going to work on order of creation, the animals were created first, so actually the animals uh, should be placed above men. So uh, whatever way you want to look at it or interpret it, and I'll leave it up to you, happy to continue this conversation offline with you uh, after church. But either way, uh, what we have here in the beginning, uh, before there was any sin in the world, um, is what God wants for us, perfect communion, perfect companionship, a pure relationship both with each other and, and with God. God's design encompasses both similarities and differences, and I think we should value, value them both. And, of course, the really raunchy bit this morning is they were both naked. Uh, they were naked and unashamed. Um, before sin entered the world, there was nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be fearful of. There's no guilt or shame here at this point. Adam and Eva are fully known by each other. They're able to fully uh, relate to each other. There's pure, uninhibited companionship at this point. They can be fully open and honest with each other because they know that they are fully accepted by the other. It's a wonderful picture uh, to work towards in our marriage and indeed all of our, of our earthly relationships. Known, being fully known uh, by, by the people around us, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Now, all of this, of course, has obvious implications, some profound implications for how we see uh, marriage. Uh, marriage is indeed, is indeed named in the text here in Genesis, in verse 24, if you have a look down the bottom. Uh, it goes on to say, Therefore a man will leave his mother and his father, and he will be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And you might be interested to know, Jesus quotes this verse. Jesus quotes Genesis here. And he had his own comment, had his own little interpretation. Jesus says, and what God has joined together, no one must separate. So when a wedding couple make their vows on their wedding day and they consummate their union with sexual union, it's not the bride or the groom who are making this union. It's not even the minister and it's not the government. It's God who does the joining. God joins husband and wife together. God does that. It's God that makes a new family. Now, the world doesn't really know this. The world doesn't really understand this. And this is why marriage and sexuality in general is treated so casually these days, so cheaply and so disposably. It's extraordinarily damaging. So, friends, let's be clear. God's good life-giving gift of, of sex was given for us within the bounds of an exclusive, lifelong union between a man and a woman that we call marriage. That's the biblical model. It's a union that should be stronger than any other. Remember, even the parent-child relationship at some point will be broken in order to make way for marriage. Being one flesh means that the man and the woman are united, not just in body, but in thought and in spirit in their goals and motives and in their desires, their vision for their life together, in, in everything. One flesh means that what is hers is his, and what his is hers. This is why casual sex is, is so destructive. When you join yourself sexually to another person, only to then move on to another, it's like you're, you're ripping apart your own body. 
It's like when you rip something apart that's been joined together or glued together. Bits of the different objects get left behind. So too, every time you join with another person in, in sexual union, you, you leave a piece of yourself with that person. This is part of the reason, of course, why divorce can be so painful. The bottom line is that people get hurt when sex is treated so casually and, and engaged in outside of, of marriage. And while life can be cr created outside of the covenant of marriage, of course, it's never, it's never ideal. The commitment and stability of, that marriage provides with a loving mother and father, of course, provides the best possible environment for raising children. The vitally important job of raising children, the long, arduous, difficult and exhausting job of raising children. I'm always heartbroken when I do hear someone deliberately bring a child into the world without a mother and, and a father. Of course it happens and of course we need to support all of those children. I have huge support, huge respect for single parents. It must be an extraordinarily difficult task. I have a, a loving partner, a loving wife and it's a hard gig for two of us. I can't imagine what it must be like for just one. So our single parents deserve help and, and respect and assistance in any way we, of course, can give it to them. I did read a helpful analogy this week when it comes to, to sexuality and to sex. Think of it a little bit like dynamite. Uh, dynamite, of course, or explosives can be incredibly helpful. They can be incredibly productive in, in engineering and construction or in mining. Um, but it can cause terrible damage when it's used and abused. Likewise, sexuality. Within the covenant of marriage is a mighty blessing for the couple and for we as a human species. But apart from marriage, it is destructive and people get hurt. Now, I also want to acknowledge at this point uh, that this is a difficult subject for, for many people. I acknowledge all the single people in the room. And I want to acknowledge that churches can be difficult places if you're a, a single person. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a married person. And sometimes you do hear married people say, we were all single once, so I kind of understand I don't think that's necessarily the case. Churches can be very coupley at times. I want to affirm this morning that neither godliness nor mature manhood or womanhood is dependent upon marriage. I want to affirm that marriage is, in fact, not the final destiny for us. So even married couples, speaking to you at the moment, uh, are you aware that there's not going to be marriage in heaven? Jesus himself affirms this. Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, verse 25, that in heaven... In the next life, we're neither going to be given in marriage uh, or we're not going to marry or be given in marriage. And in fact, we'll be like the angels in heaven is what he says. So marriage isn't even our final destiny for, for any of us. Remember that Jesus himself was not married. Uh, Paul and many other biblical uh, characters were, were not married. Uh, and in, of course, Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that being single offered him and tremendous ministry opportunities that are not available uh, to married folk. So as affirming as marriage is for some, it isn't essential uh, to experience full humanity or holiness or happiness. And although it is bewildering to think that this does need to be affirmed, uh, but here we are in 2022 when ancient universally established truths are being questioned and rejected. But Genesis does affirm that when it comes to gender, there are two types of humans male and female. There's no third or fourth or 63rd option like I read yesterday on the interwebs. Um, God has made us male and female. And it's foolishness to think that God's only intention for the genders was purely 
for making babies and for nursing them. The differences run deep. You can dig up a skeleton that's been buried for hundreds of years and still determine if it was a man or a woman. God has made us male and female. It's a wonderful thing. It's a grand thing. Now, again, of course, there are an extremely small number of people who are, are tragically born with indeterminable reproductive organs. And, of course, as people born in God's image, they, of course, deserve love and respect and fullness of life, just like anybody else. But the nullifying of the gender differences whether we're seeing today is producing a massive dysfunctionality as a young generation of people grow up not knowing what it means to be a man or a woman. And I think the cultural price we're going to pay for that is, is pretty enormous. God has done a wonderful thing making us male and female. Let's not diminish it. Let's glory in it. Another obvious point that does need to be uh, made that despite what the banners outside at the moment will tell you, despite what the taxpayer broadcasters might tell you, God's good pattern for life-giving human sexuality, life-giving both, of course, physically, literally, and indeed spiritually, is exclusively between a man and a woman. Scripture is clear. Human biology is clear. Homosexuality or any of the other lifestyles represented out there on that flag is, is in fact, a sort of brokenness. It's a result of the fall. Now, of course... None of this means that our gay friends and family members, and of which we all have. Look, my story is that I'm of the generation when no one was coming out at school, but my very first day of uni, I remember it very clearly. It was like induction day. We're going around the circle. And it was the final days of that buffy, Aussie, yobbo, ocker kind of, well, tell us a bit about yourself and tell us whether or not you like the women or men. ha, <laughs> ha. And one of our gay friends, uh, later become her friend, just went around the group and he said, yeah, my name's, my name's Ron, and I'm, he said, I'm the token poof, I suppose. Everyone, oh, yeah, okay, great. <laughs> and it really has not been an issue ever since, and there's been gay friends in every workplace that I've, that I've ever been a part of. And I made a big effort to know that they are loved and, and welcomed. And let's not forget heterosexual people. We're all broken, aren't we? We're all sinners in need of God's grace. We're all on a journey. So let's make a special effort. I think that is important to let our gay friends and family members know that they are loved, that they are welcome to come and join us on the journey into ever more being Christ-like, to ever more seeking more holiness in, in our journey, just like you and I. So with all that said, what are some of the points of application for us that we can take away this week? Um, well, I have to say again, I need to affirm that I'm a bloke, um, so I can't speak with any great authority on what it is to be a, a woman. Um, so I'll just speak to the blokes first. Men, man, mate, uh, you need help. <laughs> you need help. You shouldn't be afraid to ask for help. We men are not very good at that. We need someone beside us. I'm not even talking about marriage and woman. You need people beside you. You need companionship. No man is an island. You can't do it alone. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Do you have a vision for God's plan for, for your life? Do you have a vision for taking responsibility for your church, for your family, for your city, for your world? If you're married, do you have a zeal for taking responsibility for, for your family and for your church? Fella, are you committed to taking responsibility 
for this church family here at church in the marketplace. If not, man up is my call to you. We need men. Weak men is a problem within the church today. Men with no vision or passion who refuse to take responsibility. They can become a very dangerous person. These weak men, I call them boys who shave or the man-child. Have you heard this term, the man-child? 30-year-old men, men in their 20s, 30s and 40s, just refusing to take responsibility for anything. Sitting at home on their Xbox, eating Cheetos, watching porn. I mean, it's a stereotype, but it is, it's partially true, I, I think. There's, you do see these guys. And there's nothing against PlayStations or Cheetos, but you've got to take responsibility, man. We need to take responsibility for those around us and man up. Women are increasingly populating the church. I mean, I think we even have a look around. It's about 60-40 in the Western church today. Fellas, we're not doing a good job of reaching out to our fellow men. We need to do better. What the church really needs is humble, Christ-like. Godly, strong, confident, men who are confident in who they are, men who are confident in their manliness so that they know they don't need to act out in abusive, destructive ways, who know that they don't need to use their superior physical strength in order to relate to a woman. Friends, when we see the men step up in this land, we're going to see revival in the church. Mark my words, when it finally happens, we're going to see revival once the men start taking responsibility for their church rather than staying at home watching Netflix, whatever it is. And to the married couples, I also need to acknowledge I'm a married man so I can have a little bit of experience in, in dealing with that. Can I encourage the married men and women amongst us to look at your spouse and know that God joined you together? Look at them knowing that that, that was God's work. Look at them with a sense of joy and satisfaction that God made them just for you. God made a partner so that you wouldn't be alone. They were made for compatibility and companionship. If you don't have that in your marriage, it's not God's fault sin has distorted or, or stolen it. Like Winston Churchill who cherished uh, his wife. I love this story about old Winston, that old British bulldog, who you wouldn't think would get all soppy like this. But Winston Churchill was once asked, if you could come back as another person, if you weren't Winston Churchill, who would you be? Old Winston thought about it for a second and said, I would like to be my wife's second husband. <laughs> who would have thought old Winston, that old, loved his wife, cherished his wife, the great man of history acknowledged that actually he needed this woman beside him through it all. I certainly, for one, um, couldn't do what I do without Carly at my side. Her insight and her wisdom, her giftedness, her encouragement are priceless for me. Being one flesh married couples means you constantly strive to set your love and affection on your spouse to be strategizing new ways to have and to hold, to love and to cherish in sickness and in health. You know the story. You know the drill. Of course, can I encourage you to be very careful 
about fantasizing about someone other than your spouse, either real or digital. Adultery will break and break a marriage, but the rot starts in long before that day. And I encourage you to guard your hearts and your mind. I want to close, of course, with a, with a gospel message. I want to close, as we always should, by relating it back to God's good life-giving plan that we see in the cross. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul actually quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and he has his, his own little twist on a man leaving his mother and his father and being joined, becoming one flesh. He says that this actually refers to Jesus and the church. The union between a man and a woman in marriage is, in fact, patterned after God's love for you and for me. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom for we, his bride, the church, you and me. This is the most ultimate, best thing we can say about marriage. Friend, if you're married, for the married couples amongst us here today, if you're married, the reason that you are married is to point people to God. God is the end result of marriage, not the other way around. God is the end result. Your love between a husband and wife should point people to the covenant that God has with with the everlasting, unrelenting, indefatigable love of a, of a husband and wife that God has for us. It should be a mirror image. It should be pointing people to God's faithfulness. Jesus will never, ever leave you. He will never forsake you. There may be times of painful distance and tragic backsliding on our part, but God will remain faithful in good times and in bad. Christ will keep his covenant with us forever. Let me leave you with a, a story uh, about when I married a couple. About 80% of the couples that I've married, I think I've married over 60 now, about 80% of them choose 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as their passage. Are any of you familiar with 1 Corinthians 13? You tell me love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it keeps no record of wrongs. I could just about recite it word for word. Whenever I marry a couple, I tell them straight up what I'm going to tell them. I say your marriage should be a reflection of God's love for us, for Jesus' love for our church. And I say to the bride and the groom, you should be loving your partner with the same love that Jesus loves us. Jesus' agape love, of course, you probably heard a wedding sermon on the Greek word agape, meaning selflessness. It refers to Jesus himself. Jesus himself empties himself in order to serve and love uh, the object of his affection. That is the goal of, of Christian marriage. That husband and wife are called to love, to live together selflessly, to put the needs of the other above their own. Can I encourage us to go out and to do likewise this week? Yes, in our marriages, but in every single relationship that we engage in with your mates, with the people you play tennis with, cards with, and with the person you see on the bus or on the train, putting their needs above your own, being Christ-like, being selfless. Friends, we were made for companionship. We were made to be in relationship with other human beings on this planet. So whether you are single or whether you are married, can I encourage you to be looking to Jesus Christ as the ultimate example of what it is to love and to be in relationship. Amen? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we do pray for your help in living out these relationships in, 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 
in being Christ-like in relating to all the people uh, that cross our paths. Father, help us to be selfless. Help us to be looking to Jesus as our example. Help us to know where we can be reaching out and indeed be a, a suitable helper where we can lend a helping hand in marriages or just in friendships or even in with the person on the street, Father. And so too, we also pray for the humble humility and the graciousness to allow ourselves to be helped. Help us to see, Father, that we are not to be in isolation. That we are built for companionship. We were created for companionship. Help, our, help us to live out a Christ-like, godly companionship this week. In Jesus' name, amen.